Good morning. So when I was a seminary student at Columbia Theological Seminary um, just outside of Atlanta, um, after my second year there, I got to participate in the trip of a lifetime. Trip of a lifetime, truly. As part of this trip, I was able to go on a um, several-week visit to the Middle East and to the Holy Land. It was a trip that was sponsored by a foundation, and this foundation called the Patilla Foundation. The Patilla Foundation uh, was a family foundation started by a gentleman named Pat Patilla. And Pat was a Christian who traveled to the Middle East and traveled to the Holy Land, and it changed his perspective on faith and on life and on the scriptures. And Pat had a vision that every seminary student who's going to be leading congregations around the country should go and see the Holy Land because it changes you. And so he sends about 40 students a year from several different seminaries all around the country. It's an ecumenical trip. It's people of all different denominations, all different cultural backgrounds who go. And I was able to participate on this trip and virtually for free go and see this amazing place. We landed on our trip when we flew over in Damascus. We started in Syria, um, a city that was once very, very beautiful. Um, it was certainly when I was there. And got to see, for example, the place in Damascus where it is understood that, the, um, that Saul was writing to persecute Christians and where the Spirit of God encounters him, the Spirit of Jesus encounters him, and he is knocked off his horse and encounters the person of Christ and eventually converts and becomes a Christian. We got to see that place in Damascus. We got to see some different places in Syria. We then drove down through Lebanon, which is one of the most beautiful countries I've ever seen in my life. We went to Jordan and to Petra, if any of you have seen that, which is just an incredible place. We drove down further south from there to Egypt and to the Sinai Peninsula. One of the coolest experiences I had was we got to ride camels up Mount Sinai in the middle of the night and to watch the sunrise from the top of Mount Sinai where uh, Moses encountered God and was given the Ten Commandments as the people were at the base of the mountain. We then came down from there and went north into the West Bank, into the Palestinian territories there. Uh, we met Palestinian Christians. That is one of the only places left in the Middle East that Christians exist. They are a persecuted minority. That is underreported. But if you want to know where they are, they are Palestinian. And they are living often in the West Bank. We got to see in the West Bank the city of, Jeru of Bethlehem for example, and to meet Palestinian Christian leaders in Bethlehem. And then finally, we entered the last leg of our journey and went into Israel, into Jerusalem. Um, and it was, it was just an amazing thing. I mean, it, it does. It changes you and how you read the scriptures forever. Um, and one of the things they tell you when you go, and one of the things that you all will know if any of you have traveled internationally before, is they kept hammering it away at us. And they said, when you go and you see all these places, just be aware not to buy too much. Because you're going to have to get back to America whatever it is you buy. And they were really clear that while the foundation was paying for us to go and paying for our accommodations, paying for food, they were like, we are not paying for you to ship anything back to the United States. So anything you buy, it's like when any, ever anyone buy like a, like a little like locket or something, there would be one of our leaders be going, you know, you got to get that back. I mean, it was like this constant thing going around. And I listened to the advice. I didn't buy anything. I took lots of photos, saw lots of amazing places, but didn't buy anything. Because I knew that I'd buy something in a moment and it was like, oh, I'm going to remember this place and this experience. I got to have this thing. And then like three hours later, you're going, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I don't know where that's going to go. But at the end of our trip, I bought two different things. 
The first thing I bought was an olive wood nativity set in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem. It was a hand-carved nativity set that we put up in our house still every Advent. It's the story, it's the scene of the manger and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph. Um, and it reminds me of that time, of other, among other things, in Jerusalem, of walking the way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa, and, and seeing the places where Jesus suffered, where um, the crucifixion took place, where the resurrection took place. I mean, it's just this incredible thing that, that we brought back. And the second thing that I bought was at the Sea of Galilee. And it's this. It's this communion set right here. This plate and this cup. I'm turn so you can see the picture. And bought this in the village of Tabga. Tabga is a village right on the Sea of Galilee. It's a place where Christians believe that the miracle of the multiplication took place. That's where Jesus was teaching and 5,000 or so people gathered around him and they became hungry. And with a few loaves of bread and a few bites of fish, Jesus performed a miracle and was able to feed this entire crowd of thousands of people through this little bit of food. And I thought, what a cool thing to bring back. Not only did I think this was beautiful, but I'm like, what a cool thing to believe that the Eucharist, this little bit of bread and this, this little bit of juice that we take, that this is a holy, miraculous meal where when we take it, God encounters us every week. What a cool thing to believe that how the Holy Spirit is multiplied through that and to bring this back and to serve communion this way. So what happened was, is these were the two things I bought, and I thought I can work this, I can get them back, and I got to the airport in Jerusalem, and I had all my baggage worked out. I had bubble wrapped the nativity set, which I thought that could get through in a suitcase. It was sturdier, certainly, than this pottery. And I put that in my suitcase, and I put clothes all around it and stuff to try to cushion it as much as I could. And then I was carrying the communion set in my carry-on bag. And I got there and the woman weighed my bag and she was like, it's like a pound over. And you're like, oh. And she goes, it's okay. For this amount of money, you can just put it on the plane. And the amount of money I would have had to pay to get the overweight baggage onto the plane was like more than Beth and I were worth combined at that time in our life. And I'm like, well, that's not an option. And so in the airport in Jerusalem, I got to go through the fun adventure of repacking my suitcase. Um, and that's a lot of fun anyway. It's especially fun in an airport where every two inches there's an armed guard with an automatic weapon who's there because you open your suitcase and like eight of them descend on you with machine guns out. Like, what do you have in there? What are you doing? And then you like show them and it's like, I'm just repacking my bag. And then and they disappear, and then 11 seconds later, eight more descend on you. It's like, what are you doing in your suitcase? So after about an hour, I was able to finally like repack my bag. And what I had to do was to take my communion set, which weighed less, bubble wrap that, put it into the suitcase, and then carry the, the, the wooden nativity set in my carry-on on the plane. I got up back to the desk, and I said to the lady who was there, I was like, listen, this is, there's something very delicate in here, and it's very meaningful to me. Could you just, is there something like a tag? Is there like a delicate? Can you put something on? She said, no, we can't, but we handle every bag with care. And I said, okay, can, can, is there like a special way to handle this with care? And she said, no, every bag is special. And you're like, okay, everyone gets a participatory trophy. And so we get it, and she picks up the suitcase, and it's like, whoop, like onto this conveyor belt to take it away. And I just remember looking at her going, Bless you. Bless you. So much. Fly back to Atlanta, and sure enough, when we got back and I saw Beth for the first time in weeks, I opened my suitcase, and the plate had made it 
safe. But the chalice, the cup, was in about 10 pieces. I still got to show her the pictures. I still got to tell stories. I still got to show her the nativity set. But I was really sad and disappointed that the cup hadn't survived. Went to bed that night, woke up the next morning. And when I came out of our bedroom in our little apartment, I found the cup was like this. And that Beth, I know, it's pretty crazy, that Beth had stayed up for a number of hours that night while I slept and taking some super glue, she had put this cup back together. And it's really hard to see, but if you guys look or you can come look afterwards, when you look on the inside, there's cracks and lines all through it where like a jigsaw puzzle, she super glued this thing back together. So one of the things that's interesting about this is that this cup can't have liquid put in it. You can't use this for communion anymore. It's worthless in terms of what I originally got it for. If an art collector looked at it, they would say it's worthless as well because it's damaged and it's cracked and it can't be seen in its original beauty. But in our house, this is one of the most beautiful things that we have. This is one of the things that I cherish. This is one of the things that when I drove out to Austin, I made sure I took with me in my car because what I want to pass down to my children one day is this cracked, broken cup. Because it means something to me about love. It means something to me about marriage. It means something to me about the kind of husband I want to be, the kind of person I want to be the kind of father that I want to be. This cracked cup is one of the most precious things that exists in our house, not despite the cracks, but because of them. Does that make sense? And I want to keep this in front of you today because we are going to be talking for this week and next week, especially in this last drive in our Joseph series about God doing this kind of work in our life about the process of redemption. And redemption, if you want to know what redemption is like, this cup captures it about as well as anything. And so if today gets boring, or you lose your track of what I'm talking about, or it just doesn't seem to make sense, just fix your eyes back on that cup, because that cup captures everything that I'm trying to say about the story that God's writing in your life and in my life today. This story of redemption, we continue looking at for these uh, first six verses of chapter 42 in Genesis today. And we're going to bring the scripture passage up, and this is what it says. When Jacob, that's Joseph's father, when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at one another? I have heard, he said, that there is grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain, for the famine had reached as far as the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that today you would open our minds and our hearts to the story that you are writing in our lives, a story of redemption. Help us to begin to grasp so fully what that means that we can celebrate today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in our Joseph series, if this was a Hollywood movie, these verses would represent the point where the end credits come up. 
This would be where like everything seems like it's solved because Joseph's dreams have come true. The dreams he dreamed as a 17 year old when he said, man, you guys and my brothers, y'all are gonna bow down and worship me. They just bow down in front of him right here. God's sovereignty is declared and that the brothers try to sell him away into slavery to get rid of the dreamer and his dream and God still brings it to fruition. They bow down to show respect to his power. This would be the point where we would say, man, he was thrown into prison and now he's out and all these great things have happened money, he's got power, he's got privilege, he's got all of his dreams have come true. This is the moment. The end credits come up. Everything has happened. But this is the beginning in our story of where truly the greatest work of God takes place in, in the story of Joseph. Story of redemption. Story of taking broken pieces and bringing it back together. And it's important that we understand that because if the end credits come up, if Hollywood was in charge of writing the story, there would be a lot of broken places still in the life of Joseph and in the life of his family. And we know this, don't we? We know that this is true. We know what it is to have heartache and broken dreams and pain and loss and difficulty. And there is certain pain and brokenness that exists in this world that all the money in the world cannot fix. Right? There's no amount of money that can put together a broken heart. There's no amount of, of privilege. There's no amount of power. There's no amount of all of the things that Joseph achieves in his life that could bring reconciliation and healing and wholeness to the damage and to the wounds that have been inflicted upon Joseph. And the story doesn't end here. Now next week and this week, when we talk about this idea of redemption, God's redemption, I want us to get our heads around a couple of things. And the first thing this morning is I want to talk about what it is we need to know about redemption. And secondly, what I suggest we need to do if we're going to understand redemption. Those are the two things we're going to talk about today. What do we need to know about redemption? And secondly, if we know certain things, what are we called to do so that this isn't just Joseph's story, but indeed this is the story we understand God is writing thousands of years later in our lives in Austin, Texas. Okay? First, what do we need to know? The thing I'd suggest that we need to know from this text and this story is that the story of redemption is the story of grace. And that is critical that we understand. That's not just theological jargon. It's, it's totally important we understand that. And what I mean by that is, is that God writing a story of redemption of broken places in your life, broken relationships, broken dreams, whatever it is, that God's writing of that story is not about whether you deserve it. It's not about whether you earn it. The idea of deserving it and earning it is why the end credits would come up here, right? Joseph deserved to have this happen after all of the bad stuff that took place for him. But the story of redemption, of God healing broken places, is not a story of deserving. It's not a story of earning things. It's a story of grace. And the story of grace is an amazing, good story about God's love for the world. This story of redemption, when we say it's Joseph, a story of redemption, the title of this series, that's not just about Joseph's personal redemption. Because that redemption about grace also starts bringing in the people who we have seen previously in this story. People whose redemption is also God cares about and is working for. For example, Jacob. Now we gotta be really careful when we start criticizing Jacob. Jacob is the father of Joseph, right? And Jacob is in some pretty cool territory. Whenever God speaks in the Old Testament, most of the times when God speaks in the Old Testament, he'll say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
when you're in that category, you've done some pretty cool stuff in your life, right? Jacob is, is, does a lot of stuff. But Jacob, as we saw at the beginning of the story of Joseph, among his many great things, is probably not up for father of the year. Because what Jacob does is Jacob creates the situation where all of the action and the destruction can take place. What Jacob does is, is that he says to everybody, hey, I want you to know Joseph is my favorite. And that's not like one of those parental things, and I know none of us feel this, but those parental things when you're like, oh, I feel that a little bit in a moment, and I shouldn't, so I'm going to keep that, I'm going to bury that way down deep inside and not admit it. Jacob is going, hey, everybody gather around, all the kids gather around, I want you to hear, you're not my favorite, right? Joseph's my favorite, I'm giving him a different coat, I'm giving him nicer clothes, I'm giving him a different job, I'm giving him different privilege. I want everybody to know this is one, the one on the gold medal stand. All of the rest of you, silver medal's as good as it's going to get. Like, this is not how we should parent. And Jacob makes this mistake. And it's like, no wonder his brothers hate him. Some of you have had the experience of not knowing if your parents really loved you. And that is a significant wound that that creates in our life. And it is given by Jacob to his other sons. And at this point in the story, Jacob is an old, broken, sad man. How do we know that? Well, we know that because his family is starving. They are starving to death. The famine has reached Canaan. And so he hears that the Egyptians are selling grain, not just to Egyptians, but to anybody. So he sends his 10 sons down there to buy it. But who does he not send? Benjamin. Why does the text say? Because he is scared that harm could come his way. He knows what's happened to Joseph. He does not want this to happen again. So he is just protecting and being defensive with everything. And that is not a way to live life. Because yes, life is uncertain, and yes, life can burn us. But when that pain starts causing us to live defensively in every place, that is less than living. And Jacob has diminished to the point that he is letting fear drive how he treats his family even now. And the cool thing is even in an old age, God's love for Jacob despite his flaws means that God's not done in putting the pieces back together in Jacob's story. Jacob's coming back into the picture now. It includes Jacob the work of redemption is the work of grace. And it's not just the work of grace for Jacob, it's also the work of grace for his brothers, Joseph's brothers, Jacob's other children, who commit this really horrible act of selling these, his brother, Joseph, into slavery. Now, they deal with this wound and they have these things that happen in their life, but the evil that these brothers commit is breathtaking. And it's not just to Joseph, as we've said before, but they are committing the evil to Jacob. They are allowing their father to believe that their son is dead. And they don't just do it one time and then it's like, oh, I regret it. They continue to choose that as a group every single day for years. This is an act of evil. But God is not done with them either. This is not just the story of Joseph's redemption because he deserved it. The story of redemption is the story of God's grace, the story of God's healing. And that is good news, folks, because it means that no matter who you are or what you have done, God's grace is still being written in your life as well. No matter what you've endured, no matter what you've gone through, it's not about who deserves it more. It is about the God who is writing a new story in Joseph, in Jacob, and in the brother's life. God is still writing that story in yours. This is a story of grace and the amazing love of God for us. The story of redemption, that's what we've got to know. That the story of redemption is the story of grace. 
And secondly, if that's what we understand, what do we do? How do we respond to this? Well, how we respond is the way that we are called to respond to grace. It's not that we have to do something to make redemption happen. We don't earn it, again. But there's patterns that we can see that we can begin inviting into our life. And maybe the most important pattern that we see in how God fixes broken pieces is that we have to move towards the brokenness. We have to move towards the pain. We have to move towards the thing that's difficult to us. We can't do what we often do, which is to build our lives going, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm over it now. I'm okay. What we do as people is that we have learned from a young age that when there's something painful or hard, we walk away from it. We move away from it. We don't like being in those situations. And so we build around dysfunction. We tolerate dysfunction in our life. We tolerate broken relationships. We tolerate pain. We learn for that to become a part of our DNA. And what God's story of redemption is not about just going, hey, I'll just wipe that all away. But God's redemption is taking broken pieces and saying, you've got to move towards it. Now, that is one of the scariest, hardest things to do because it fights every instinct that we have. I love this quote that I want to bring up from Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who talks about this process and what its calling is upon our life as Christians. And this is what he says. He says, forgiving and being reconciled to our enemies or our loved ones, Joseph, are not about pretending that things are other than they are. It's not about patting one another on the back and turning a blind eye to the wrong. True reconciliation exposes the awfulness, the abuse, the hurt, the truth. It could even sometimes make things worse, which is one of our chief reasons that we're like, oh, I don't need to do this. I don't want to make things worse. It could even sometimes make things worse. It is a risky undertaking, but in the end, it is worthwhile. Because in the end, only an honest confrontation with reality can bring real healing. Superficial reconciliation can bring only superficial healing. What Tutu is saying there is that we can't just believe in God putting the pieces of our lives back together because we superficially go, no, I'm okay. No, 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 it's okay, really, I'm over it. I don't even think about it anymore. It doesn't bother me anymore. I've gotten used to it. It's the way things are. And yes, it risks the idea of making things worse. But it's the only way that healing takes place. This is the pattern of how God redeems. So, What I want you to hear is is that what it means in your life to move towards the pain or to the hurt or to the brokenness, that's up for you to discern. There's not a prescriptive way of that. You might be responding to hurt or abuse or feelings that you can't just go walk back into that situation and I'm not asking you to. But what I am saying is that we can't receive the healing God wants for us if we're running from it. And so we got to figure out what it looks like for us. That's part of why we do community. Community can help us figure out what would it look like for me to journey towards the pain. I don't know. Sometimes the voice of others is how we figure that out. You gotta not be running. You gotta not be building around the dysfunction. You gotta not be tolerating. We have to move towards it. One of my favorite authors is Donald Miller. He wrote a book that I've mentioned before called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in this book, Donald Miller talks about what this pain has been like in his life. And he talks about that since he was very young, he has never been known as dad. That he was the only child of his parents. His parents divorced. And when his dad left, Growing up in Houston, Texas, his dad left both his, his mother, but he also left Donald Miller at a very young age that Donald Miller really didn't have a memory of him. He said that growing up with someone whose dad has chosen to ignore your existence was one of the great wounds in his life that he learned to deal with. 
He learned to build around. He learned to tolerate. He learned to look at people and say, no, I'm fine now. Yeah, it was really hard, but I've kind of moved beyond it. I've gotten on. But finally, one day he was confronted by some community, by some friends who looked at him and said, you do know this is still driving you, right? Like you are aware of the fact that no matter how much you look, you go, no, I'm fine. I've gotten around it. I've kind of learned to work around it. I'm okay. They're like, this is still, it's impacting your relationships. It's impacting your friendships. It's impacting um, your your." Um, thoughts about your job and your life, it's impacting everything. What would it mean to journey towards that rather than going, no, I'm fine. No, we're okay. And he talks about in this book, the process of tracking his dad down, taking several months to do it. And finally, the moment after contacting his father when they agreed to meet and going and seeing his dad for the first time in decades. And it's not a Hollywood ending. They don't run into each other's arms and start bawling and apologize. He said, actually, it was quite awkward. They do what guys do. They had a sporting event on, and they were kind of like talking about it, right, as well as sort of talking to each other. But they started connecting. They started following up with each other. And Donald Miller said that it was one of the most important things for the putting back together of his own heart of anything he could do. What does it mean to move towards that wound believing that God can do something. What would that mean for you? Because God's story of redemption is your story. It's my story. God's story of redemption is about taking the real hurt in life and repairing it. But you will still have cracks. You will still have scars. You will still have places in your life that don't come together in pristine ways. But what we learn in how God redeems, it is is those scars, those cracks, those imperfections that actually make us beautiful, actually make our lives beautiful, actually make our lives meaningful actually make our lives something holy that God has touched. Imagine if every person here today left this place trusting that the God who was weaving a story of redemption for Jacob and Joseph and Reuben and all of these brothers is still writing that story in your life today. And that it gave us the courage to move towards the hurt to see what God can do. We would walk back in here next week with some amazing stories to tell. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask this day that you would lead us in this journey of healing and redemption that we have been called to. And may the beauty of your work in our lives overwhelm us with the healing that can take place as we move towards pain. Give us the faith and courage to take this step to see what you'll do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing one last song together.